What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Jim Casey, the father of paranormal television, the founder of Painless Productions. It's the first time I met him. He's a great guy. He's the executive producer of The Dead Files on Travel Channel. We're talking over 200 episodes of that series, Reasonable Doubt on Investigation Discovery, and his new hit, Fright Club, with Jack Osborne and the Ghost Brothers on Discovery+. Plus. He's been in business over 25 years, so I had to pick his brain. He has seen transition after transition in the unscripted business. I asked him about paranormal TV and what is the art form like producing that. And I also had to ask him about his backstory because I found out he used to work on the Mickey Mouse Club back in the day. So you know I had to go there and dig. This is my sit down with Jim Casey. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so one Jim to another. Yes, sir. Are you actually a James? I am a James. I wish I had gone with James. I wish I had started with James. It's a cooler name. Yeah, Jimmy and James are great. Jim is boring. Jim's the Jim's the new Bob. Okay, so James for you, what's what's the middle name? Patrick. James Patrick Casey. Yeah. James Patrick Casey is a serial killer name. So uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Interview over. Cat's out of the bag. I think I got it. Now I got to run. Now I'm a fugitive. Thanks, brother. <laughs> My my dad was Irish, but so I but only half. So I'm quarter Irish, but clearly he had a lot of influence in the name process. So I ended up James Patrick Casey. And I wish I had gone with James. I wish I had gone with Jimmy. It's too late now. You can't, you know, after a certain age, you can't do it because then you're that dude. Um, but my wife's last name is Wolf. So when we go away and they call me by if she books the reservation, people call me James Wolf. And I'm like, that's mm. a cool name. So now we have Jimmy mm. Fox and James Wolf. So James, that's a cool name. James Wolf, I can see having a lot of best selling novels. I was just going to say, if I ever become a novelist, uh, I, I don't I don't know. I've been, time's kind of running out, so I should hurry on that. But yes, that is totally a, a novelist name. Yeah. See, I, I'm a big believer, by the way, in like your name can actually impact who you become as a person because it it impacts how people treat you, you know? But by the way, how did Sylvester Stallone escape that curse? Imagine growing up with the name of Sylvester in the, yep. in the, in the 60s and 70s at the no, height of the cartoons. You're right, but did, he just, but did he just adopt Sly like in high school? I don't know. That's something we're gonna have to find out. If only there were a device that we could find something like that. If, 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 only, if, if only there was a never-ending uh, informational field in the app. Uh, no, it's funny you bring up Sly. I was literally thinking the other day, you know how they're making that TV series that's about like the making of The Godfather? Have you heard about oh, this? I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know about this. I believe it's a Paramount uh, Plus series okay. that's all about the making of The Godfather. And... I was thinking the other day about how you could totally do that same thing with the making of Rocky because S S Stallone's story of writing that script, shopping yeah. it around Hollywood, him getting offers from people, but him rejecting the offers because they didn't want him to play Rocky. And he's like, no, 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 I have to star in this. 
and he was an absolute nobody. And then to win the Academy Award, that's a, it's it's an amazing story. It, it is it is really an amazing story. And and speaking of The Godfather, the other day I I I was interviewing someone and I used the uh, for a job and I and I used the term uh, consigliere uh, from Godfather and he didn't know what I was talking about. Yeah. So it's like I think I have to keep looking. Yeah. Oh, believe me, I've been, I've been I've been caught in the in the uh, aged reference game many a time, <laughs> many many a time on this podcast. No, but I'm really excited to meet you for the first time, Jim. Like Amen. I got Amen. I got an email and she was like, "Hey, Jimmy, do you want to like do an episode with the father of paranormal television?" <laughs> and there's not a lot of reality TV producers that have like a branding like that. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? This will be my what 50 we've done 51 episodes at this point i've never once talked paranormal television on the podcast and i'm like absolutely i'd love to meet jim casey yeah well thank you i i wouldn't say i guess father implies that i gave birth to it i'm kind of like the uncle uh i'm like the annoying uncle um uh, i mean look i always give credit to you know there's certain things that i always wish i were in the room for i wish i were in the room for the pitch of field of dreams and how they sold that and I wish I were in the room for when Craig Collegian sold Ghost Hunters or whoever at his company sold it. Because to present to network executives and say, well, you're never going to see the ghost. You're never going to, you know, and it's, well, wait, but if it's Ghost Hunters, aren't they going to find the ghost? Well, you're going to find evidence of it. I, I would have killed to have been in that room, a fly on the wall in that room. But Jim, like that's, I'm glad you just jumped right into it. Yeah. Just kind of like yeah. address, address the biggest note of the genre because you've made 200 plus episodes of the dead files. Yep. Right. Do you still marvel at the fact that you can make as many episodes of television as we have in the paranormal genre without seeing anything, but yet the genre lives on. It's like the equivalent in the reality TV world, just from the outside looking in, it's like extreme makeover home edition. If you never saw the finished product at the end of the episode, you spend an hour on the process leading up to it. And then you just never have like the reveal at the end. You can make that argument, but it doesn't matter. I, I, it clearly doesn't matter, but does it like, do you marvel at that fact? You know, I, I, it's a really good boy. You're asking the hard hitting questions right off the bat, Jimmy. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you. No, I, it's, it's, it's funny because I have gone into, I've walked into, you know, cocktail parties with friends and people who kind of know me, but were more acquaintances will say, Hey, so I'm watching, you know, dead falls. And this is, you know, season seven, when are we going to see a ghost? And I say, probably never. I'm just telling you probably never. And, and because I don't think it works that way. Like, I don't think they, it could happen. I, but, you know, I also think how often does The Bachelor actually get married at the end of the season? You know, they say that that's what they're there for. But, you know, I think that's always what the, what the, what the, um, the genre is all about is the evidence of it. And what are we seeing? And, and, and what are we going to see that's, that's more convincing? I think if we ever actually saw something everyone would call bullshit on it. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's, I think the evidence is more exciting. I think the, you know, I, I'll give you an example because this is what we're here to talk about. Um, I was, uh, people always ask me, what have you seen? What have you seen? Well, I was gonna, I, that was one of my questions yeah. I had was if you had to get, share one anecdote with a skeptic, Yeah. what, what is the one anecdote that you share from all the and, shows and all the hours of television you've made? 
It's a great, it's a great question. I have heard things I can't explain. I have seen things I can't explain, but this one situation is probably the best example and the one I usually use. Early, the first two seasons of Dead Files, um, I just really had a way that I wanted to make the show before I, I, you know, completely, you know, before I was not out in the field anymore. So I was out in the field for every episode. I operated second camera even on the, you know, on the walks with Amy so I could be close by her so I could manage those and make sure she didn't have any interruptions. I would just double check everything before we got started. So we were in the um, uh, Lizzie Borden house in Massachusetts. Okay. Okay. And what we do is we hide, we cover everything that could influence Amy, that anything that could show a religious iconography, anything like that. We cover family photos so she's not influenced and we hide anything that might be a distraction. So I was, in those days, I was always the last one in the house. I got a, sh- I got a camera on my shoulder. I'm waiting for her to come in. We're all about to call over the mic, over the walkies. Let's get started. And I'm just doing one more idiot check around the room. And I see up on the, high up on the shelf, a Ouija board. Okay. And I know that she doesn't like them. And I know that it's going to distract her. So I quickly, I'm in, alone in the whole house. I grab the Ouija board. I slide it under a skirted sofa. And where there's no way she can see it, see it, because if I carry it out of the house, she's going to see me with it. And then she's, you know, so I slide it under the sofa. I swear to you, she comes in the house. She does walks around. She makes a beeline for that sofa and says, something is under this sofa. I need this sofa moved. Now in, at the time, 15 episodes, she never asked to move a piece of furniture, never asked for access that wasn't to anything that wasn't right in front of her. You have to move the sofa. And I'm like, no way. There's just no way. And sure enough, we move the sofa for, she looks, she sees it, she goes, oh, move the sofa back. She somehow knew that thing was under there. And, uh, you know, another time. So is that that derived? Is that derived because someone on the other side was telling her that? What was Amy's process at that point? For Amy, the process is that she has these guides on the other side. Right. And that they direct her and they they tell her kind of what's going on. They're kind of interpreters on the other side. And But sometimes she'll just, just feel something. It's funny. We try to ask her a lot of times, like put it into words and it's very hard. She said, it's sort of like, when you have a thought in your mind, but imagine that if somebody else put that thought in your mind, and which I think is hard for most of us to comprehend. Uh, I'm glad I don't have it. I mean, it's definitely, uh, you know, I, I got, you know, but I got enough voice. Going but, on my but it is one of those things where when you experience something like that, when you see it up close, you go about your life, right? And everything's normal, but you have that memory of that one fleeting moment where just something was totally unexplainable. And you always kind of look back at that moment and you're like, I still don't know what that means. Because small example, my mm-hmm. wife was a reality executive for years and she was at ABC and we were just about to have our first child. Okay. And, and they took this meeting with a psychic who came in to pitch a show. And in the meeting, now me and my wife had been spending months debating what we were going to name our first child. It was going to okay. be a girl. We knew it was going to be a girl. We liked boy names for girls. We could not agree on any names. Could not. We finally, finally, finally looked at an old classic boy name list. And Everett 
stood out to me because I'm like, you can call her Ev, you can call her, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. there's, there's some nicknames there to play with. And, cool name. and uh, we had just decided on it and we hadn't told anybody. She goes in this meeting, the psychic, we, she didn't post it. It's not on her social media profile. No way to hack this, which I mm-hmm. know is something they do. And goes to this meeting and this guy writes it on a piece of paper and hands it to her. Everett, of all the names. And this is Come not, on. this is not a widely used name. I also, no, go on those, I also go on those like popularity lists at the time when we were having kids. I'm like, well, if our kid's name is in the top 50 of most popular names, we're not doing it. He wrote it on a piece of paper and handed it to her. So it's like, how do you explain that? How do you explain it? What do you feel about it? What's your beliefs in all this? Oh God, man! I, I well, you I don't was, have I, that kind of time. No, I, yeah, I don't know if we have that kind of time or booze. It's it's twelve fourteen on a Friday. Me and you are supposed to be constructive after this, but but yeah, like I was brought up in a very religious home, and you know, I like everybody else. Like time goes on, you grapple, but I think it would be ignorant to not think there couldn't be something out there that we can't see with our own eyes, no matter what. Like science even tells us that. That it's ignorant us for thinking that we're still discovering planets. So who am I to say that there can't be like energy or spirits or things on the other end that can affect us? Like, so that's kind of like the state of mind I have. Yeah. You know? And a lot, a lot of, you know, investigators, and I know Amy in particular, you know, talks about the whole, you know, you know, string theory and different dimensions and this momentary intersection of these different dimensions and and, you know, you get in all of the Einstein, you know, relativity stuff that I don't understand. But we actually had a guy on another show who, who was this uh, 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 astrophysicist kind of dude. And he, he was talking about, he said, you know, imagine a dimension is a sheet of paper and you're a worm through that moving through that your world is is two dimensional but let's say you fold that piece of paper in these two places where that paper touches you can now pass through and it was like okay that starts to help me understand this but you know i'm agnostic about all of it i'm Mm -hmm. agnostic about everything i'm comfortable not knowing and you know i was raised catholic um in a you know not a you know, we went to church every Sunday. We never missed mass, that kind of stuff. Confession, I went to Catholic school first four years of my life, you know, um, until my parents were like, wait, they hit you? <laughs> you know, my parents were like, if anyone's going to hit you, it's going to be us. So no one else can hit you guys. And then they pulled us out of the Catholic school. But, you know, I, so I'm agnostic. I'm comfortable on this journey of trying to figure it all out and being entertained in the process. And I don't want to just put you in, and I'm sure you maybe get annoyed with it sometimes. You don't want to just be placed in the paranormal box. Mm. You've been very successful in, in other genres. And I was looking through the shows that Painless Productions makes. By the way, 25 years. You look at the bio, 25 years. And when you say 25 years, you're thinking, okay, let's go back 25 years. That's, that's like right before the reality boom. Yeah. When you when you started the company and I'll, we'll get in the origin of the company in a second, but yeah, yeah. as we look at dead files, you look at another one of your, your, your hits, which is reasonable doubt, mm. similar dynamic, right? It's a, it's a man, woman, two hander going to a new location, doing an investigation, people that need answers, cinematic recreation that needs to be woven in. Do you, do you guys do recreation reasonable doubt? I would assume you do. 
We do uh, a yeah. more impressionistic kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and it, it's no uh, it's no surprise that the, the similarity that show Reasonable Doubt. My partner on that show is Rob Rosen, who's been my showrunner on Dead Files okay. for nine of the ten years, all mm-hmm. but the first season. So Rob brought me that idea, and he's like, "Hey, I have this idea. It's got a similar dynamic as far as bringing closure to people, but we don't really have the weight." of having to prove someone get, or getting somebody out of prison. Cause that's what so many shows were doing at the time. It's like, we're going to prove they're innocent. We're going to get them out of prison. It's like on a TV schedule. Right. How are you going to manage that? I've been so, there. Yeah. I've yeah. Been there. Oh yeah. That's yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but you're kind of now getting the talking point from like the oxygens and the IDs. And they're like, please don't bring me a show where it rests <laughs> on having to actually solve anything because we know you won't, you know, like, <laughs> exactly. But it, but exactly. do you want but for those who don't know do you want to walk the audience through what reasonable doubt is and and how many seasons it's been at Investigation Discovery? We just started our fifth season. It is um, a uh, a defense attorney and a uh, retired homicide detective who work together to bring closure to a family who believes that their family member has been falsely imprisoned for murder. So we don't promise to get them out. What we do is we promise that we'll reinvestigate the case from a completely objective point of view. And what we do is we start with basically leads that the family gives us. Right, right. So they say, well, they didn't admit this in court or this person said that they lied. So we investigate all the things that weren't admitted in court or a lot of times they think there was a corrupt system, whatever it was. We reinvestigate all of those things to really put their their, uh, concerns to rest. And and probably a third of the time, we do find that the the person was, uh, seems to be falsely in prison. And some of the people that we uh, investigate and and deem that they shouldn't be in there are not now are, are not, are now out. And, and we've played a little bit of a role in that sometimes and a larger role other times. And yeah, so it's, it's pretty rewarding. So that project, you're now starting season five, you said, right? Yeah. You and your partner took a format that was working on the dead files and thought we can apply it to this. Did you just start looking for the, the talent when you had that idea for the premise did you walk it into the network with, here's a format, we'll cast it for you? D- did you guys do all the legwork beforehand before you walked it into the network? I just want to know, like, what did you bring it in with? Yeah, Rob originally brought me the idea with two talent uh, that he had already found that he liked. So we shot, uh, a t- neither of those talent are in it now. One did the first season, but the network had different ideas. And, and uh, so we did it, we did a tape. Rob went out and shot it and I cut it. We took it to ID and it was, you know, Jimmy, it was, it was the time right when making a murderer was yeah. Yeah. huge. Right. Yeah. And it was right after that. And, and, and serial serial was huge. Mm-hmm. And, and I went into the network, I knew what we were up against. And I said, you know, I know the word you have heard. It was at real screen. And I said, I know that you have heard the word serial more times than you ever thought you'd hear it in the past, you know, day. And I am not going to mention serial. I'm not going to tell you we're going to solve a crime, but I'm going to give you all of the, you know, we're going to give you all of the emotion that you would get in the same journey, but it's ending with closure instead of 
instead of freedom or you know jump getting somebody out of prison and but you know it worked but you, you look at that and you reference making a murderer right that already jim doesn't that feel like a generation of tv ago i guess i just want to hear from you i guess through this lens like what has changed the most since you got going like we we're just talking about making a murderer going to real screen you know however many years ago it was that feels like three shifts in the reality TV world have happened just since then. And that wasn't all that long ago. Yes. And through that time, I always have to control my bitterness that I didn't come up with Survivor, that I didn't come up with Dancing with the Stars. So I think that's been the biggest challenge. You know, what's changed the most in that time? For me, it's been, there was a time we all learned in fourth grade that a, that a monopoly is a bad thing for the product, right? Yeah. You know, that competition makes a better show. And I think what's happened is in all the networks and streamers quest to carve out their own niche, their own slice, that what's happened is they've created these monopolies for themselves. So they don't really have competition in that space. Yes, there's still competition in crime. There's certain areas that there's still competition but there are a lot of areas where there aren't. So what's end up happening is I think over time, the product suffers a little bit because as you don't have buyers looking over their shoulders and saying, well, if I don't do this, someone else will. It's like, no, I won't do this because although I, I, you know, I want my talent to be between the ages of 27 and 34 and this guy's 35, so it wouldn't work for me. So I think that that's what's changed the most. I miss the days. Bidding wars were good for the product. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. and and they were they were good. It's good to have people looking over their shoulders of if I don't make this the best show, who will? Of, of if I pass on this show, who will end up with it instead and make it a hit? You know, a little. I, I, I'm not a kind of person who rules by fear. I don't think creativity, fear um, uh, serves creativity well, but I do think that it helps light a fire under some of our butts and really think something through and look for the positives of it instead of, nah, it's not really, I don't think this it's, works for us. It's funny, it's funny you say that, talking about uh, lighting a fire and not negativity, but like, enforcing the stakes, you know, involved does light a fire. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, so you, yeah. you, 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 you hit it right there that like, you know, yes, you do need to light a fire and people do need to like feel the competition. No, no, it's, it's all true. It, it's, it's completely true. I mean, I, I have really nothing to add to that, that it's, it's, you know, we set the tone and, and I feel like, I mean, look, when was the last time you looked at a new show coming out. I look at sh new shows coming out all the time and I, and I think, you know, oh, that's cool. That's a cool twist on the idea. But when was the last time something came out that really blew your, door, your doors off? It was like, that is really different. And that is really bold. And, and I feel like, you know, years ago as a joke, I made, God, this is like, this is like almost 20 years ago. I made what I was calling like, I, uh, I took little plastic boxes and I got dice custom made that had like groups of people on each side, like eight nuns, six choir boys, you know? And then on the other thing, it was a location in a mansion on a bus, you know? And it was like the reality <laughs> roll-o-matic I put on the side. I just said, it's like, here, roll yourself a hit. 
And I just sent these out. It was just a whim idea that I had. And I sent them out to everybody. And it became so true yeah. that it's like everything is a tweak and a tweak and a tweak. And, and you know, for me, I got into this business because I like to make shit. You know, uh, I like to build stuff and I like to make TV and I, I, I'm not, I don't love the business side of it. I don't love the power side of it. I just want to make stuff. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I like to make stuff that's different and, you know, I'd like to kind of challenge the norms and find new ways of doing things. And it's very, it's scary to do that. It's scary to be on the buyer side. I, I would imagine to, you know, you want different, but it's like, mm, that's really different. Right. Now, let me, let me ask you. So you start painless. Mm-hmm. What, what time in your life are you in when you started the company? Cause I know you had been in-house doing producing work for various networks and shows leading up that one notable show that I'm definitely going to geek out on in a little bit. So I'm, I'm getting there. I'm probably, I'm, I'm probably, yeah, I'm pro- it's going to make its way into the intro of this episode. I, I knew, I knew you were, uh, I knew it was just a matter of time before it came up because everybody, <laughs> I have never, I won't utter it yet. Cause I'll receive yeah. that for you. Every time I have said the, the title, everyone giggles, no matter who it is. If, if you've listened to this show, you will not be surprised that the second I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, that oh, yeah. is red meat, red meat yep. for me. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. Yeah, I knew as soon as you saw that, I, yeah. But, um, but, but like, where were you when you started the company? What, like, where were you in between? Were you trying to figure things out? Was it on a whim? How did you start Painless? It was, uh, people ask me that and I say, do not do what I did. Um, at the time, I, I had done show running. I hadn't done enough. Uh, I, I hadn't done, you know, look, pigeonholing can be a bad thing, but it can also be a good thing to get a company off the ground because if you're the game show guy, yep. hopefully game shows are in vogue and you start a company and people hire you. If game shows aren't in vogue, it was bad timing. But I wasn't, I had such an eclectic resume that I wasn't known for anything. Anybody who had worked with me known that I was, hard, I was, I, I was knew that I was known for hard work you know, and that I was creative and those things, but they couldn't say, oh, hire Casey. He's the game show guy. He's the reality guy. He's the, and like you said, this was before, you know, the, we, we were still calling it reality-based television. Uh, you know, you had um, uh, Real World and that was kind of it. Um, so it was just, this emergence was just starting. So I struggled for quite a while. I was doing, um, I was doing a lot of interstitial stuff, short form stuff. So I started it because I, I thought it was going to buy me more freedom. Mm-hmm. I thought stupidly, <laughs> I thought that, Oh, I'm going to have more, you know, I'm going to be able to do the stuff I want to do. Well, duh, you know, you got to have somebody who's going to pay for that. So you got to sell it first. So I, um, it was rocky for a while. You know, uh, it, it was, it was tough. I was like, God, this is, you know, this, should I have really done it this way? And then once you're in it, you know, but were there, yeah, were, but were there some moments there, like in the early years where like painless might've just like gone away and you were meaning like, you may have just decided this wasn't for you and you may uh, have only, like, only daily, only daily. <laughs> um, it, it was a lot of hard work. And it was a lot of long hours and it was a lot of, you know, you know, look, it it was like those, you know, the, the, 
the movies that get made on credit cards. You know, the company was first built on credit cards. They didn't want to do loans. They just wanted to figure it out. I, I you know, in those days, I knew, you know, I, I am not a business minded guy now. I'm not like, you know, I didn't get an MBA or anything. I'm more of a TV making guy. But then I had, I had no education as far as the, you know, the business side of it. Was there a uh, turning point? Or was there one show that like became like, okay, painless, we get what you are now? You know, in the early days, it's, it, uh, to be honest with you, it was probably Dead Files. You know, in yeah. the uh, early on, um, I was doing, you know, we did all the dog shows for Animal Planet for 10 years, for nine years, traveling around and, you know, those confirmations, like, like real life best in show. Yeah. And, you know, those shows kept the lights on for a long time and they were fun to do. We, you know, we learned a lot and then we were doing a lot of stuff with Animal Planet. And that was in the days when Animal Planet, you weren't allowed to hook a fish <laughs> on Animal Planet. Seriously, that was a rule. You could not hook a fish. You couldn't put a worm on a hook in the first place to hook the fish. So, so it was, and then Animal Planet completely changed. And now they're like hog hunting on Animal Planet. So, yeah. you know, then... I shifted and I saw this opportunity in paranormal and then, and then, you know, made the dead files, but, you know, I was always, I was always, it wasn't the pitching and the creation. That was the, that was the tricky part. It was the business side. Mm -hmm. So when I finally got someone on the business side who was taking care of the books and, you know, all that kind of stuff that I, I knew yep. so little about, then yeah. it really freed me up to just kind of, to do my thing. And, um, and then I think it was really reading, learning to read between the lines of what network executives are often looking for um, helped a lot. That's a big thing, by the way, in terms of the notes process, because yeah. early on in your career, you've, you take the note at face value often, right? and you, you apply the note directly. Mm -hmm. And over time, you start to realize that's not really what they mean. Like that's right. not their, that's not their issue. Their issue is something else that can be addressed. What, what they're asking you to do is not going to make it a better watch. And you know that they don't know that yet, but you know that because you know the footage as you get, you know, longer in the two, so to speak, like in the business, having gotten a lot of notes and having been through this ritual before being asked to apply similar notes, you kind of know like, oh yeah, like you're saying, I got to read between the lines. Yeah. The, the problem is that I just learned that last week, Jimmy. So that's <laughs> why it's been a struggle. Um, no, it, it's, it's absolutely true. You know, the, what you're, what you want to get in the habit of doing is, is just thinking, putting yourself in their position, right? I mean, that's ever, that's kind of the key to everything in life yeah. is putting yourself in their position and asking yourself, what do they really want in a global sense yeah. more than just the specific note of this tiny little note here? Yep. And that was a very important thing. Let's talk about, like you said, you built it up from the ground up. Mm -hmm. You had to have someone come in to kind of help you on the business side as you yep. have, has, have this creative executing mind. The company hasn't sold, right? No, not yet. No, not yet. All right. Not yet. Well, uh oh, not uh -oh. yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have not sold. So 25 years, you haven't mm -hmm. sold. You've got one of the longest running shows out there right now. You've, you've established uh, a handful of franchises. I don't want to skip over Fright Club, by the way, which is now on Discovery Plus, which is another fun paranormal show with comedy studio set. It's great. You've got a lot of business going. Clearly, people are knocking on your door. So why not? I guess that's a simple question. Why not? Um, 
you know, I still, I still love it. I still love what I'm doing. And well, I don't mean they're putting know. you out the pasture, right? Jim? Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess I keep, you know, I, I, I think I need to probably entertain it more. <laughs> um, I think, I think my fear is that my, my philosophy has always been, we spend more waking hours with the people we work with than the people we, than our, our spouses. Yeah. Right. I mean, so I've kind of built this thing with the help of a lot of other people to, to really enjoy what we're doing. Yeah. And to re- and I, I guess my fear has always been that a company is going to come in and go, all these snacks, they're out of here. Coffee is now 50 cents. You know, <laughs> I guess that's kind of been my fear because you hear those horror stories. And it's like, I want to be good to people so they feel appreciated because if they leave, first of all, I'll miss them, but also yeah. because I have to replace them. And now yeah. it takes all my time. Yeah. So I, I have never, I have never squeezed a nickel because I just don't think it's, it's money well spent. And that is what I think my biggest fear has been. Um, yeah. But if, I, if I, you miss, really I heard a great, you. I heard a great quote the other day, which was don't try to be happier than happy. Right. That's so like, right. Yeah. Right. So like, um, it seems, it seems yeah. like you're very happy with the culture you've built. It seems like you're very happy that you've like gotten the company to where it's at and you get to do whatever you want. You get to run the place as you please and mm-hmm. you have people in house you like. So why change any of it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, speaking of the, you know, the, I think it's why COVID has been kind of especially tough because you know, we, you build the, you build a community under this roof. Right. And, and that's, I think what we all feed off of is each other's energy. And suddenly we're at four corners, this point, four corners of the country. And I think that it has an effect. So I'm eager for everybody to be able to get back together, even if it's not full time, but just to be in each other's presence. Well, let's talk about that. That was something I wanted to ask you. I haven't talked to another production company head about this, but I'm curious, how are you running your team these days? What is, what is the rhythm in terms of your development meetings, a bunch of standing meetings with your team right now where you swap ideas? Like how, how does it work? Is there like a Mondays we do this, Wednesdays we do this? Like what, how are you operating right now? I'm just we curious. Do. We, have, we have standing development meetings. We have standing executive meetings. Um, and I think that's all well and good, but I don't think that's the key to successful TV shows. Uh, you know this as well as I do, that the great ideas don't come from scheduled meetings. They come from two people waiting at the cappuccino machine. And they're like, you know, it'd be funny. The show about cappuccino machine, you know, and who knows what it spins off to. And I think that that's where most of the great, you know, you're walking. We used to walk all the time over to um, 7-Eleven to get Slurpees until we realized, why don't we just buy a Slurpee machine? So we have one of those at the office. But, you know, it's, it's those moments where the ideas come up. The, the unscheduled times is where I think the great ideas come up. And that's what I think we're all missing. Um, but we, but yeah, we, we schedule meetings. We, we do all of that, all of that. And, and, you know, I think, especially those of us on the creative side, we look for almost any reason to get on a zoom together. It's like, Hey, I have an idea. Let's, let's quickly do a zoom. And we just kind of all, you know, cause we just, I think we all crave that FaceTime. Yeah. Yeah. I think at least that's one thing moving forward. Like eventually we'll all be in offices together again and things will settle, but I will take the zoom over the phone call any day of the week. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hate the phone. I hate the phone. If you can't read somebody's face, right? Like 
I start, I, it starts giving me anxiety. If I can't, fact, if you're pitching or something. Jim, the fact that we ever did phone pitches, like just, you look back now, you're like, what, were we living in the dark ages? Yeah. How yeah. is that good? How is, especially when it's an executive you don't know and it's your first time meeting them and you're pitching something over the phone and you know they're just like scrolling through Pinterest the whole time or, you know. <laughs> well, you now we like, know what you do. <laughs> yeah, what, are we, what are we doing? Um, okay, Jim. Yeah, uh-oh. It's time. Mm-hmm. It's time. We need to talk about mm-hmm. the credit. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about the one credit on your bio. Yeah. If you go on the Painless Productions website, there is one notable credit that you still keep in your bio because you know yeah. it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I am I am talking about early 90s, Jim? Yeah. I'm talking about the early 90s reboot of the Mickey Mouse Club. Boom. And Jim yep. Casey worked on, and we're talking about the era of Brittany, Christina, Carrie Russell, Timberlake, Ryan Gosling, and of course, we're not gonna leave out JC from, from NSYNC. Yep. What was your job on this show? Tell me everything. Okay, so this is like, I'm three years into my career. I, this, this, they're looking for a segment producer. Um, I was actually on a job at the time I was doing a morning show called The Home Show that ran for like forever on ABC Morning. And, and I, I, my first job was I was a set carpenter. So I knew carpentry. Wait, your first so, job out of college was a set carpenter? I was a set carpenter. My first job out of college, I, I was a page at NBC. But when I oh. moved to LA, I did it for a month and a half. And I was like, I'm just not a tour giving kind of guy. So I moved here. I was a set carpenter. So the, this morning show I was doing any, they were doing the early days. The only people doing reno, home renovations were Bob Vila and this show called the home shows before HGTV existed. So they would send me to locations to oversee the production and construction. I had a tool belt, I had the whole thing going on. So I, uh, the, the Mickey Mouse Club was looking for segment producers. They actually flew me out to interview with them. And I took flew, a job flew you out to, is this in Orlando? To or Orlando. It? it was in Orlando. Okay. So I went to Orlando. I interviewed with them. I got the job. I got to tell you, it was so much fun. It was this show. First of all, I only worked, it was the early days. So it was before I worked with Kerry and I worked with JC. The others were after my time. I did two okay. seasons on the show. Okay. So it was a massive staff. Mm-hmm. massive departments they had art department they had graphics department music choreography it was crazy the size of this show so i get the job they kind of give me the tour i've got announced you know still going back to la pack up my truck drive to orlando and on the way to orlando i'm like i don't know if i know how to do this job i mean i i came from a show that had you know, I mean, you're building stuff yourself. We didn't have that kind of a budget. And I'm getting like this massive anxiety. And literally I'm in Texas on the 10th, it driving in the rain and I'm kind of a little freaking out. And I look up and next to me is a bus, a correctional, you know, from the direct department of corrections. And I look up and I meet eyes with this guy who's being taken away to prison. And he looks at me and I look at him and I'm like, could be worse. I'll figure it out. And I got there and had the time of my life. It was like, it was like being in college with a big budget. Yeah. And you're just like, you're coming up with stuff. You're where the kids are great. The 
we just had a great time. And were you, so, was it like tape days on Friday? Like, so like Orlando tourists, like kids and parents are in the audience or what, what, what was like the tape day like? Yeah. I'm trying to remember exactly what the schedule was, but yeah, on tape days, it was like, it was, yeah, they just, they filled the audience. You know, we, I spent a lot of time doing field segments and right. editing, you know, those, and then, and then we would do, you know, we prep stuff for the, for the, uh, uh, for the studio. It was a true variety show, right? You know, it was one of the only variety shows left and it was, it was so much fun. So I did it for, I did it for the one season, see, which was their season three. Mm-hmm. And then um, I came back to LA and they asked me to come back as a director. And at the time I wanted to write. So they said, would you come back as a director? I'm like, yeah, I, I really want to write. And they said, well, our, our writing crew, we're bringing back everybody and the staff's full. So we don't have a spot. So I was like, all right, I was hired to write a different show for Nickelodeon. So I did that. And then the, the next season they called me again and offered me a like show producer, a producer credit. So I went back for another season and then they asked me to come back to subsequent two seasons and I declined both times because it was just, it, live, working in Orlando, I was, it, it, I'd come back to LA and people were like, oh, I thought you moved permanently to Florida. It's like, no, I just was going for a few months. But it was it was a different world. It wasn't like it is now, where everyone's always on location in different areas, and you know we didn't even have cell phones. Well, also when you when you're on a show that long, you realize that you're kind of being put on an island, away from the rest of the industry, right? Yeah. So right. You're, you're you're probably thinking like, so do I want to work on kids shows the rest of my life? Like, is this what I? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you have to start thinking like, is this the circuit I want to be in now? Like moving forward. Exactly true, and that was what happened. It was. You know, the, the, you had, you had Nickelodeon, Disney and PBS children's television workshop. Yeah, that was it. And they, and they, uh, that was it. So it was like, and you kind of had to pick who you want to work with because they kind of weren't crazy about each other. You know, so also, like, I didn't oh, think about, I didn't think about the, the turf war because Nickelodeon had a lot of stuff going on in Orlando too. Yes. Right. Yeah. So they, it, so they, they weren't that far from each other shooting shows at the time. Yeah, it was like West Side Story. Wait, what was, was the like, what was the Nickelodeon of, show you did? What what was that Nickelodeon? I, show? There was a show I wrote called Wild and Crazy Kids. Okay, wait, you're like acting. Come on, you're, this is this is my wheelhouse. This is my wheelhouse here. Oh, okay. okay. My cousin, my cousins were on an episode of Wild and Crazy Kids, uh, which I probably know them. Shine here in L.A. I wrote the host copy and came up with a bunch of the games. But I'll tell you something else that's kind of funny about that. As I told you, I was a set carpenter. Yeah. And the show was very small budget. And we would come up with these crazy games that we usually couldn't afford to build. So I was a guild writer. I mean, it was a, it was a WGA show. So I would bring my power tools to work. So I would write the two scripts that we were oh, going to shoot that week, get them approved, and then I'd build props. And nobody, nobody like forced me to do this. It was just like, hey, if we want to have awesome games, we're going to have to build them ourselves because our art department was PAs who really, I mean, it wasn't their fault. They weren't carpenters. They didn't know how to build stuff. So I would just grab them and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I, I'd say, here's my cut list. Somebody go to Home Depot and get all the stuff. And and yeah, so it was awesome. It was I, lo- I, I love, because I, I think back on that era of Nickelodeon and I always think about Wild and Crazy Kids because I, it vividly stands out in my memory. But like, if you had to explain the format of the show, the format was there was no format, right? It was just None. three hosts on location 
and kids are just coming up with games. Like there's just new games being played every episode. And then there's like pre-recorded bits with like kids here at the school came up with their own game and you can now play this game at home. But there wasn't really a format to the show, right? And and Jimmy, that's why you I could write two scripts in in a day and then go build stuff because <laughs> it was like, you know, we would just come up with the silly bits and 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 you know, we I spent more time at Toys R Us buying Nerf guns and stuff than I did, you know, than I did writing. Toys um, R Us, Toys R Us, RIP. I mean, the fact that like my children will never really, I mean, I, I think there's maybe a few out there, maybe somewhere, but like I know they went bankrupt not that long ago. But the fact that I have like kids that will never understand the experience of walking in to a Toys R Us, it just tragic. makes me kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it is an American tragedy. I say, I always say I was brought up in like the super soaker generation, you know? Yeah. I had, we had rocks and sticks. <laughs> uh, well, Jim, anything you think we missed? Anything you think I didn't, I didn't cover? No, you know, the only thing that, that I, you know, doing all this paranormal that I do, yeah. Um, people always assume that they're like, oh, you must be a huge Hitchcock fan and Wes Craven. And, and the strange thing is that most of this stemmed from the fact that all that stuff terrified me. <laughs> all of those yeah, movies. I was gonna, yes, I was going to ask, like, were you, were you like into horror and, and suspense at a young age? Yeah. No, uh, it terrified me. And I'm, I'm saying like, I'm not talking about, you know, seeing this scary movie at eight years old. I'm talking about like at 18, at 28, you know, like I never liked these movies and the Axeburgers and stuff didn't bother me. It was the, the paranormal stuff. It was the, the supernatural stuff that freaked me out. I didn't see the exorcist till I was 21 and it freaked me out. And so, you know, I, I didn't kind of go to the film school of horror. I went to the film school of three older siblings who, terrorized me and so when I kind of do the paranormal stuff I just think what would scare me and that's what I do so uh yeah it's I think I'm unlike most people in the genre where I was not a fan of the genre because it scared the hell out of me well real quick for anybody out there that's listening that has a paranormal show or is planning on making a paranormal show from the father of paranormal tv himself (laughs) What talk about that? What are the key elements that you have to have to make a successful paranormal show? I think it's whoever your talent is, they they just really have to be in it. You know, they have to uh they they just have to be in it. They just have to love it. They have to really be on a quest, not just telling you they are. They really have to be searching, you know, for something. And, and I think that there are different, there are different models for success. I mean, you know, you look at something like uh, Ghost Adventures, which is a great show, a great, a great you know, hugely successful show. And, you know, that's more of a romp. They go into a space, they run around, they freak out, they give you the history of space. It's a really well done show, but it's, there's not really personal stakes there except for the, their personal safety. Something like Dead Files, I think the longevity is because of it, the relatability. You know, you can go your life without ever stepping foot into a haunted asylum or whatever, but you can't go your life avoiding your own home. So if you can instill in people's minds, like the movie Poltergeist did, what's going on in my own home? What happened here before I was here? 
I think that gives it, you know, a long life is that relatability. Jim, go call MTV and go get them to reboot fear. Go make fear yeah. for them. Yeah. I, can you, can you go do that? Cause I loved that show and I let's would love to, let's, let's I call love, them together. By the way, I do you want to see some real quick. Yeah. So I'm going into my cupboard behind me here in my garage mm-hmm. where I record. I'm holding two jars of sand, Jim. You know why? Because I took out a sand sculpting pitch a couple years back. And I know that oh, you've wow. done two of those in the past. You did Sand Wars and what, Sand Masters? Sand Masters. Sand Wars started as Sand Blasters. Yep. And okay, great do you want to hear this? Do you great shows. This? No, I love uh, it. Great, uh, okay. great shows we had. Yeah. The, the, the network called and said, we want you guys to develop a sand sculpting show for us. So we kind of developed this following these groups of competitors. And they said, no, they want us to, we want you to do what you guys do with the dog shows. We want it to feel like a live event. And, and this was just all on a a phone call, like you were talking about before a pitch phone call. And I said, so wait, you want it to just be just like, it's like feeling like it's live. I said, that's going to be incredibly boring that's yeah. literally going to be watching sand dry they do it over like two and, days right and and i said it just it won't work and i said and i don't know what made me think of it it was in that moment i said all right how about if we do it like a giant game of russian roulette and there was well, what do you mean i said well just have these people sculpt and every two hours we spin a wheel and one randomly gets blown up <laughs> and the and the and the teams have the, the that team has the remaining time to catch up and finish a new sculpture. And there's dead silence on the phone. And I'm like, oh God, I really blew this one. And, so, and my executive says, that's awesome. <laughs> and thank God he was a kid at heart too. And he was also my executive on Dead Files, who got yeah. Dead Files made. Um, and that was how, how it came about. And that was, that was a lot of fun. I love it, man. I have fond memories of growing up in Santa Cruz and like every year they'd have the sand sculpting competition there, there on the beach. And, uh, as I was taking out this project, like a couple was pre pandemic taking out, I would bring these two different jars of sand to the pitches to show them like, this is the sand that's good for, for sculpting. This is the sand that's bad for sculpting. Some of the best sand in the country for sculpting is shipped from like, you know, wherever it was, I think it was like Maine or something like that. Yep. And like, I found these experts in the, in the whole thing. And you know, the one project always got referenced were yours, of course. Oh, and, so and, and then as I was preparing for the podcast, I didn't realize that was actually your show until, until today shows until today. And I was like, Oh, I got to mention this to Jim. I, I was just going to ask why two jars of sand instead of one. And now I know the answer and, and now it all makes complete sense. Because I need to show them like the art form of what it is. Like you can't just show up to any beach and expect one sculpture to be the same as the next, like different, different beaches have different it, sand. Exactly. And then it's, when we did the, well, the funny thing was after sandblasters, uh, after they kind of retired sandblasters, it did, we it ran for a few years. Then, then they came back to us and said, well, what else can we do in this space? And I said, well, why don't we do the original pitch, which was following these guys who travel and that became Sandmasters. And we did like 26 episodes of that. Awesome. Um, but we sent to those, we sent those guys to some beaches that did not have ideal sand. <laughs> it, was, it was like stacking rocks in New Zealand. It exactly. It went all over the world. It went exactly. all over the world. Uh, oh, this was great, man. I appreciate it. Great talking to you, man.